Hi, everyone. Merry Christmas to you. If you're watching online, Merry Christmas to you as well. My name is Steve. Uh, It is a privilege to be able to speak to you for the next hour and 45 minutes or so. You guys okay with that? How many of you ever heard the story of the prince and the pauper written by, um, what's his name? Mark Twain. That's his name. Anybody? It's basically the story about the future king of England, Prince Edward, when he was a child, and he wanders outside of the castle, and he comes across his doppelganger or his look-alike. Have you ever had that happen to you in your life, come across somebody that looks just like you? Some people say, this is my doppelganger right here. Christopher Maloney. Yeah, he's on Law & Order SVU. I've been stopped multiple times about that. But anyway, he runs into this boy named Tom Canty, and he's a peasant, And he decides to switch places with Tom so that they could experience each other's life for a time. And so Tom is a peasant. He grew up in a really rough home. And so Prince Edward starts to experience all this. And long story short, he decides once he becomes king, he's going to make some changes for the peasants because he realizes how hard they really have it. The problem is he shows back up at the castle expecting Tom to give up his place and people don't recognize him. They don't know him as the true future king. And it makes sense because he's dressed in rags and he's poor. And it reminds me, I'm not going to give away the rest of the story, but it reminds me exactly why we're here tonight to celebrate. It reminds me of the story of Christmas. Because the claim of Christmas is nothing less than the fact that the Prince of Peace, King Jesus, was not recognized. Because he was born in poor, dirty rags in the middle of nowhere, in a time when no one expected him to come. And when people are finally confronted with the claim of Jesus, they respond in three different ways, much like the people working at the castle respond to Edward. And what I'd like to do tonight with our time is just consider a story together in Matthew 2. We've already seen parts of it. And the three reactions people have towards the birth of Jesus, because I believe these are still the same three reactions that you and I can have towards Jesus today. And so if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, if you brought one, you're welcome to do that. We're going to be looking at Matthew 2. If you'd like to grab one of the black Bibles we have underneath there, you're welcome to do that as well. In fact, can I just say to you, we're all about giving away Bibles. Christmas gifts is a time to give. If you don't have your own Bible, you're visiting us, you're with us tonight, take that Bible home with you as our gift to you. We'd love everything every person to have a copy of God's word. Now, before we actually look at it, I'm going to talk about the first reaction that somebody had to the birth of this king, and his name is Herod. What do we know about Herod? Well, we're told that he was called Herod the Great, which many people actually believe he gave himself that title. It reminds me a lot of when George Costanza tries to get people to call him T-Bone, right? Doesn't work out so well for George, but it worked out for Herod because we still call him Herod the Great. He was born in 70 BC, and then he was given power over Judea in 40 BC. That's where Jerusalem is. He did some good things. He did some building projects. In fact, he expanded the second temple a little bit. But to be honest with you, Herod would be better known as Herod the Not-So-Great, because he was a cruel, brutal ruler. In fact, if you think some of the drama going on right now with the British royal family is crazy, check out this. History tells us that at an early age, his father, who was also a politician, was murdered. 
And something snapped inside of Herod at that moment where he vowed to himself, that will never, ever happen to me. And so he became one of the most brutal people, always protecting his power and his life. He would kill for power, bribe for power, lie for power, steal for power. He would even marry for power as long as he could be in control of his life. And friends, honestly, whenever somebody became a threat to his throne, he would simply have them murdered. We're talking about three of his sons murdered by him. We're talking about his very own wife murdered by him. Now, if you think that's bad, it gets even worse. One week before Herod was to die, he knew he was on his deathbed. He had a number of political leaders arrested and thrown in prison so that on the day that he died, he gave orders that all of them were to be killed at that moment so that there would at least be tears in Judea on the day of King Herod's death, because he was not very well loved. You think that's bad? Let's pick up our story tonight in Matthew chapter 2, and the reaction Herod has to the coming of this king. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Uh-oh, After all we just heard, how do you think Herod is going to react to someone who is known as the king of the Jews? I don't think this is going to go down well. Verse 2, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 3, when Herod heard this, this is my favorite subtle comment in all of scripture. He was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Why was Herod disturbed? Because a new king threatened his power. And as we learned, Herod will do anything to protect his power. Now, some people have asked, why would Jerusalem be disturbed along with Herod? Well, you all know the saying, right? If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. If Herod ain't happy, they know they're in big trouble. And sure enough, skip down to verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. We know it was about two years before. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Yeah, right. Herod is plotting. He's so proud at this moment, though. He doesn't go himself. He thinks he can get these guys to do his dirty work for them. It was never in his detention to worship Jesus. Look at what happens in verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. We'll find out why he was outwitted in a minute. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Brutal, power-hungry. The Magi are warned in a dream, don't go back to Herod so they don't go back. He finds out about this and he just realizes, okay, I'll just kill any child, any boy under the age of two to get away from any threat of my power and influence. And friends, I know this is a bit extreme reaction to Jesus, but I want to say to you, many people still today are disturbed by the coming of this king. Because like Herod, they see a threat to their power and to their way of life. I mean, after all, if Jesus really is the king, I don't know where you stand on that. But if he really is the king of the universe, then at some point he will demand authority. And many people simply do not want to give up their authority. 
Herod's response is simply what I would call original sin, which every one of us carry around with us, which says when Adam and Eve took that fruit, they said, we don't want what you have for us. I want to be my own king. I want to lead my own life. And every single one of us at one time makes that decision. Jesus, no thanks. I don't want you to have authority in my life. Herod's not about to give up his throne. And today, the spirit of Herod lives on in many of us. You see, if Jesus is the king, he knows what that means. That he will have to submit himself to the king and his kingdom. And if we're honest tonight, if you're honest with yourself, I don't know where you are. I don't know who you're here with. You prefer sitting on the throne of your life than having somebody else do it. We all do at times. There's no way around it. I mean, Jesus just makes some strong demands about our life. We've got to count the cost to follow him, he says. But I like to say, well, I'll just date who I want to date. I'll marry who I want to marry. I'll spend my money however I want to spend my money because I'm sitting on the throne of my life. No thank you, Jesus. And we think it's a great thing because we can come to the end of our lives and sing along with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And we celebrate that in this country. If I could illustrate the spirit of Herod, the reaction of Herod, it looked like this, right? I am on the throne of my life. Jesus isn't even a part of my life. He's out there. I know about him. I know what he demands, but I want nothing to do with him. The second reaction to the coming of the king is found in that of the religious leaders. What do we know about the religious leaders? Here they're called the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Well, we know they were experts of scripture, the Jewish law, the Old Testament that you have if you have a Bible in your lap right now. And they loved it. It was their way of life. They did everything in their power to memorize it, to have it by heart, to live out every single rule that they could find in the Bible. This was their life. This was their highest priority. And so listen, if any group of people were to be excited about the coming of the Jewish king, you would think it would be the religious leaders, wouldn't you? I mean, they know the promises better than anyone. But look at their response to Jesus, starting in verse 4. When he, or Herod, had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Verse 5, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet had written. What prophet? Well, the prophet Micah, who they had memorized, what did Micah say? Verse 6, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. This is incredible stuff. They know exactly where this king is going to be born. Like, listen, these are the guys that you want on your Bible trivia team. They know everything in scripture. And so we pick it up in verse 7. And the religious leaders rush to Bethlehem in anticipation. That doesn't say that. They do nothing. I mean, literally, Bethlehem is only six miles away from Jerusalem, and yet there's nothing written about their reaction to go and find this king. There's no visit. There's no excitement. They simply ignore the king's coming. It makes not the slightest difference in their lives. They're not threatened like Herod, although they will be if you've ever read the Gospels. They don't like some of the things this king claims. Because they're so engrossed in their religious activities and their Bible and their laws and their rules. Isn't this amazing? 
Here are the people who knew all the right answers. They went to church every single Saturday, synagogue. They tithed. They knew the Bible. They followed the rules. They knew exactly where this king was going to be born, but they didn't go. They knew it all, but it didn't affect their lives at all. Hmm. Could that be a reaction some people still have to Jesus today? We find it in the pews of churches, right? It's possible, friend, for you to know about God your whole life and miss Jesus. They knew about God their whole life, but they missed Jesus. It's possible for you to be super religious, super self-righteous, but be oblivious to the only thing that Jesus really wants, which is a relationship with you. Jesus spoke about this pretty harsh language in Matthew chapter 7 when he said these words, many will say to me on that day, the day he returns, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Right? We did all kinds of religious stuff. I did everything you told me to do. But then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. What does Jesus want? As king, he wants to know you. He wants to be known by you in an intimate, personal way. He doesn't want your religious rituals. Friends, this is my story. I've shared it before. I'll share it again. When I was in high school, I was a very good kid. I grew up as a pastor's kid. I had to be. I did all the right things. I tried to be as good as possible All because I believe the lie of religion that I think many people still believe today is the better you are, the more God will love you. And when you get to heaven, instead of like a seven, you might be an eight. And so I look at other people and I go, you're a seven, I'm better than you. And that's what these Pharisees and the teachers of the law were doing, right? And we still are tempted to do this today. Many of you come to church every single week. You have parts of the Bible memorized. You read the Bible, you do all kinds of religious activities, you're more moral than other people. But that is not what makes a person a follower of Jesus. Becoming a Christian means your passion is to know him intimately and personally, not just know about him. I mean, we're told in Scripture, even the demons know Jesus. They know about Jesus What Jesus is looking for is people who will choose to give their lives to him. But the spirit of religious leaders lives on in many of us still today. And to illustrate it, I would do it like this. I'm still sitting on the throne. I'm still proving myself. I'm still better than others. I know Jesus. I know about him. He's a part of my life, but I don't want to give him every part of my life. So I'm still going to be the leader of my life. Third reaction to the birth of this king comes from the magi, or we like to call them the wise men, right? What do we know about the magi? Well, the term magi suggests they were astrologers with a special gift to discern the times and and dreams. And this makes sense since they have been following a star for two years that they believed was an indication of an enormous event in human history, the birth of a king. Now, we don't know exactly where they came from. The Bible just says from the east, But they were probably men of high position, probably not kings. Sorry to ruin that song for you. Near Babylon. 
And that would make some sense if you know the story of Daniel at all. He actually refers to magi in Babylon. And I'm just sharing all that to get one point across. This would have meant that they had traveled 2,000 miles in order to come and see this king. Remember the religious leaders? Couldn't even go six miles. These guys took two years, 2,000 miles to come and see this king. Let's look at their response in verse 9. After they had heard the king, this Herod, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And now I love this verse. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is the only reaction that we can have to the birth of Christ. They worshipped. In contrast to Herod, who was threatened by the power of Jesus, in contrast to the religious leaders who simply ignored the birth of Jesus, these wise men, these magi, travel thousands of miles away simply so they can bow down and worship him. What does worship mean in your mind? What do you think when you think of worship? You think singing songs? That's an expression of worship for sure, but worship at its core definition means ascribing worth as an ultimate value. In other words, who do I ascribe or what do I ascribe ultimate value to in my life? That is what I worship. And friends, we all worship something. We all worship something. We may not know what it is. Here's a good way to tell, though. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your energy? Where do you spend your money? But the Magi teach us, and I'm simply saying to you tonight, there's only one thing worthy of our worship. There's only one thing worth ascribing ultimate worth and value to, and that is Jesus Christ. What does worshiping him look like? I love in this verse as we see a little pattern here. Number one, it means bowing. They bowed before him. What does that mean when somebody bows? You all know, right? If you were going to bow before somebody, what are you suggesting there? You're taking on a posture of humility and you're saying, I'm looking or I'm bowing before a superior person. This happens to me every time I walk into the office and Pastor Brian uh, bows before me, right? But seriously, right? Worship is humbling myself. Bowing before one who is superior to me. What's the difference between Herod, the religious leaders, and the Magi? They're the only ones who are willing to humble themselves. They're the only ones willing to give their throne to the Lord fully. And friends, that is the only way, the only way to know Jesus. Jesus' very first words in his most famous sermon, right? The Sermon on the Mount. He says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean to be poor in spirit? Feeling sorry for yourself? No, no, no. It means recognizing apart from something outside of me, I have no hope. I have no chance. I can't save myself, no matter how religious I am and I try to be. I need someone to come and help me. You bow to Jesus. Second, they gave to Jesus sacrificially. Now, bringing gifts was particularly important in the ancient Near Eastern culture. When you came to a superior, you better have something to give them. 
and gifts showed respect and honor. And these magi give meaningful, sacrificial gifts out of respect and honor for Jesus. I, I just got to do this quickly, but because it's so cool if you've never realized this, right? The three gifts they give, we know them. We sing songs about them. Gold. Who would you bring gold to? You'd bring it to a king. And so they're recognizing, here is a king. He deserves gold. What's the second thing? Frankincense. What's frankincense? Anybody know? It's like an incense that you would burn where? In the temple. It'd be a great gift for a priest. Now what's cool about that, right? We know that then the author of Hebrews tells us Jesus becomes our great high priest. What do priests do? Priests are mediators between us and God. God is too holy for us to be in his presence. So he gave us priests in order for us to commune with God. But we're told when Jesus dies, when he raises again from the dead and ascends to heaven, we don't need priests no more. He's our great high priest. And they recognize that and they give him frankincense. And then the last thing, I mean, this just blows my mind. They give him his myrrh. Do you know what they use myrrh for? Embalming the dead. These magi know that this is a king who will lay down his life for his people. They prepare him for that. Finally, what does worship look like? Here's the rubber, where the rubber meets the road. This is really the main point for us tonight. Worship requires obedience. Where do I see this? Look at verse 12. And having been warned in the dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. They didn't just pay lip service to Jesus. They actually gave their lives to him in total obedience. Today, worship has been reduced to singing some songs, showing up at church, maybe reading the, the Bible once in a while. But true worshiping of Jesus always requires obedience to him and to his word. Jesus said it as plainly as possible in John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, keep my commands. Worship is submitting your life and the authority of your life to God and his word. Not perfectly. We got no perfect people here, do we? <laughs> but we have forgiveness and grace and mercy. We have the Holy Spirit who gets us back up on track. But obedience is what it means to give him your life. This is what this looks like in this third picture. He's got the throne, and you're, at, you're on your knees. You're on your knees before him. So let me just get straight to it. We're almost done. Be honest with yourself tonight. Which picture represents you? Is Jesus not even a part of the picture? He's outside of your circle, like Herod? You're doing it your own way. Can I just ask, how's that going for you? Are you joyful? Or are you more like the religious leaders? You're going through the motions. You're coming to church Christmas Eve because I know that's what my mother-in-law really wants me to do. Religion doesn't work, trust me. It's dead. Or are you like that third illustration and you finally recognized the superiority of Jesus and you're willing to bow before him once and for all and worship him? Either he's the king or you're the king, and there's only one path to true life. He's not going to force you to give up your throne, but make no mistake about it. This is the most important decision you will ever make, 
and it's a matter for all eternity. Jesus claims what made the religious leaders so angry is he says, I'm the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So tonight, I want to give any of you who find yourself in those first two responses, those first two circles, the opportunity to finally recognize him as king and worship him as he deserves. If that's you, will you pray with me? Jesus, I confess to you, I've really wanted no part of you in my life. Or I confess to you that I've just been going through the motions. I confess that I want to sit on the throne of my life. And tonight, I'm turning from that once and for all. I'm recognizing that that path is a dead end. And I'm looking to you. I receive the free gift that you give me, the gift of grace through faith. I put my full trust in you. And I commit with your help to walk in your way. May this be a line in the sand for me tonight as I choose to worship the king. And everybody agreed and said, Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.